It's time now for the complete story, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, with today's complete story. Well, I tell you what, Rich, I have been so conflicted. Uh, you see, Bot Radio Network is reaching an audience from California in that beautiful, great Central Valley as well as down to Texas, and then all the way up from Texas through Oklahoma and on and on, clear up to Fort Wayne, Indiana, for all Tennessee. across Tennessee, Kansas. And Nebraska. as I have been watching and thinking about all the political commercials and things, I'm just frazzled. <laughs> you know what that means? It's an old-fashioned word. But I'm tired. I'm tired of hearing all of the fist-fighting and all of the back and forth. Uh, I wonder uh, if people listening now to this broadcast are not also tired. Well, maybe tired, but Dad, it's an important battle. It's a battle worth engaging. There's so much at stake, uh, starting with the life issue. Well, I mean, yeah. when you think of it, really, life and death is on the ballot. All right, folks, and I, and that's the way I want to approach today's yeah. program. Now you know that Tuesday. Tuesday is the day that people should vote, unless you already have voted. And like you, you've already voted early. Oh, absolutely. My wife and I, we decided we're going to vote as a matter of honor, personal, personal integrity. And responsibility. And responsibility for taking it seriously. That's one of the things we did. Now, uh, I want our listeners to know we're not talking about politics Rich, you brought up the subject first about life. Right. The life of an innocent, unborn child in the womb of its mother. Can we just start there? Right. For goodness sakes, folks. If you're tired of all of the bickering, you're tired of all of the claims and counterclaims, can you start off with who? Who stands for the right of life to the unborn child? Isn't that something that gives you a firm foundation to make up your mind? And we know God is the author of life. I tell you what, if you if you if you really don't know who is who, you could look up your state's pro-life organization, their website. I'm sure they would have something for you to go by if you don't already know. And by the way, you should know. Mm-hmm. Now we were in Houston, Texas. Yes. Just last weekend. Houston, Texas, and one of the pastors that we've admired so much over the years is Dr. Ed Young. What is his church in Houston? Second Baptist Church of Houston, Texas. Huge church with, I think, six or seven different campuses, thousands and thousands of people that they minister to all across Houston. And let's also say I want to congratulate all of the other pastors, all of the other shepherds that are encouraging their people to vote. Yes. For goodness sake, stand up and vote. We're hearing good reports all across the country how pastors are encouraging their people to take their responsibilities seriously to vote because we know that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. Okay. And we need to vote for righteousness. Okay, we need all, to vote for life. All the way from Houston, Texas now, this is what Dr. Ed Young told his congregation last Sunday. Here it is. You'd be amazed the people that said, politics in the church? We don't want politics in the body of Christ. Man, it is totally out of place. 
And I want to ask these people, have you ever read the Bible? (laughs) To whom did the prophets address those in authority, kings, queens, those in secular authority? They spoke God's truth to them. What about Jesus, you say? Who do you think the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians, the Judaizers were? They were political entities. The Roman Empire was that a political enemy? And Jesus stood and spoke God's truth into them. And when we back up and let moral issues go by, the body of Christ is making a serious, serious mistake. Well, we don't legislate morality. Ladies and gentlemen, every bill that is passed, somebody's morality is legislated. And therefore, we're getting ready to vote. How many of us here have already voted or are planning on voting? Will you lift your hand? It's important that we stand tall and straight. Don't worry about all the voter guides. Vote for those who believe in a reverence of life and the sacredness in the womb of a mother, and don't worry about anything else. You know, Rich, just by by the way, folks, that was Dr. Ed Young, Second Baptist Church of Houston, Texas, last Sunday. Wasn't that powerful, Rich? Oh, it was, Dad. And it's so exciting to hear pastors boldly from the pulpit encourage their folks to vote and take that responsibility seriously. Little by little, little by little, as the church becomes silent and even buys into the contemporary way of thinking about things, why, the worse it gets. I'm thinking of Kansas, for goodness sakes, here in the heart of America, one of the candidates for Congress, she's a lady, And she is an avowed atheist by her own statements repeatedly over time. And yet, and yet that is not brought out to the public. And I think the public has the right to know who they're voting for and what their value system is based on. You need to know everything about a candidate that is truthful and who they are, their character, what their principles of life. And I appreciate what Pastor Ed Young said about voting on the life question, voting for life, because we've we've found that when a when a candidate is right on the life issue, they tend to be right on most everything else, religious liberty, traditional family values, kind of a biblical worldview. All of that starts with a reverence for God's creation yeah. in life. Well, you know, this other candidate, here you go, and it's right. This other candidate I was talking about from Kansas, she also uh, is in favor of late-term abortion even after the child can feel pain, scientifically proven, for goodness sake. So you're right. I hope all of our listeners take their responsibility and their opportunity to vote very seriously and exercise it. Okay, now here we go, folks. Hang on, because Paul Harvey, years ago, years ago, Paul Harvey said, if he was the devil, if he was the devil, this is exactly what he would do. Listen to it now and see if this isn't the way it is now. If I were the devil, 
If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. The. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you, for to you, as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, chart in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the, sy and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey. Good day. Now, Rich, that was, that was Paul Harvey as he gave that statement how many years ago? Fifty years ago, if you count it. Didn't you say 1968? 1968. Maybe it was 65 or 66. Right in there. Right in there. 65, 66, 67. Right in there is when he said those words. And isn't it amazing? It's almost like he was prophetic. Some of the things have gone even beyond what he predicted. Isn't that the truth? Now listen, folks. If we're not alert and we don't keep God foremost, front and center in our families and raising our children that way, honest to goodness, the whole thing turns in a circle. The whole thing turns in a circle. And uh, look back through the Bible. Look back through 
world history. And you'll see that what Paul Harvey said next is so true. It's called From Freedom to Chains. We start out with freedom. Think of the children of Israel in the Bible. And with freedom, they couldn't handle it. And pretty soon, pretty soon, they were back in chains. Listen to this. Now then, what makes a nation strong? Taxes? <laughs> There's nothing new about those either. The first income tax was paid by Abraham. It was written on a rock by the hand of divinity and handed to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And you might want to remember this. It was at the flat rate of 10%. It promised the wrath of God on anybody who tampered with or violated that law. Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. Joseph was a relatively well-to-do landowner of the house and lineage of David. Yet the taxes exacted by Caesar Augustus were so exorbitant that he didn't have enough money left over to employ a trusted messenger for the mission, so though his wife was great with child, he made the journey himself. And Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. And Christ was born in a manger because there was a housing shortage when he got there. Our problems are not new. At Runnymede, the Magna Carta was handed to King John on the end of a sword denying to royalty the right of unlimited taxation. Yet you know it was for us, the American people, to become the first in recorded history ever voluntarily to surrender our rights to private property? Oh, yes, we did. With an innocent-sounding constitutional amendment, the 16th, which says that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived, and we forgot to put any limit on the extent to which we could tax ourselves. Conceivably, we could be taxed out of all private property. We could be taxed not 70%, 80%, 90%, but 100%. We could awaken one morning and find that the government owns the farm and the house and the car and has a mortgage on the church, legally. Historically, whenever any nation has taxed its people more than 25% of their national income, initiative was destroyed and that nation was headed for economic eclipse. Presently, the American people are being taxed 33% of their total income. History says we'll roll forward on momentum for a little while, but we'd better get some more gas in the tank pretty quick. You see, ours is not the first by George good government to arise on the world stage. There have been several. Rome, Spain, and Greece, and China, and each enjoyed about 150 years at its zenith. That's just about our time in the New World. And then each decayed away. Not one of them was ever destroyed by anybody else's marching legions. Each rotted away, morally, socially, culturally, economically, simultaneously. You know, one of the most cruel paradoxes of history is this. Because each was a good government, it bore bountiful fruit. And when it bore bountiful fruit, the people got fat. And when they got fat, they got lazy. When they got lazy, they began to want to absolve themselves of personal responsibility and turn over to government to do for them things which traditionally they had been doing for themselves. At first, there appears to be nothing wrong asking government to perform some extra service for you, but if you ask government for extra services, government, in order to perform its increasing function, has to get bigger, right? And as government gets bigger, in order to support its increasing size, it has to what? tax the individual more, so the individual gets littler. And to collect the increased taxes requires more tax collectors, so the government gets bigger in order to pay the additional tax collectors. It has to tax the individual more, so the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler. And the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler until the government is all-powerful. The individual is hardly anything at all. 
The government is all-powerful. The people are cattle. Now, some believe that the need is for a vigorous, strong man to arise on the scene, to regulate and regiment the affairs of men. Yet history tells us there have been several such. Once upon a time, there was a nation great and powerful and good. She was suffering from the aftermath of war, from a depression. And then came upon the scene a leader, an idealist, self-confident, intolerant of criticism. Wisely, he limited his early activities to combating the financial depression. Nobody could argue with that. But in a while, he began to regulate business and establish new rules to govern commerce and finance. Some of them in diametrical disagreement with the God-made laws of supply and demand, but anybody who disagreed with those new rules was promptly fired. The new leader saw that under the old system of free enterprise, landlords prospered, so he levied new taxes to take away their profits and destroy what he called the monopoly of capital. To please laborers, he controlled prices. To win the favor of the farmers, he gave them loans and subsidies. The national debt mounted alarmingly. Whenever anybody tried to tell him that governments, even as people can go broke, when they spend beyond their incomes, he said they just didn't understand deficit finance. Well, what do you say? Did he build on rock or on sand? I say on sand. For you see, this was the story of Emperor Tsu Tung Po, who led China to its doom more than a thousand years ago. I am satisfied with all my heart that if Uncle Sam ever does get whipped, here too, it will have been an inside job. It was internal decay, it was not external attack that destroyed the Roman Empire. Starting about 146 BC, internal conditions in Rome were characterized by a welter of class wars and conflicts, street brawls, corrupt governors, lack of personal integrity and moral responsibility. About 290 years after Christ, uh, Roman emperor named Diocletian took over. He really grabbed the bull by the horns. He took over in a period of turmoil and severe depression. The first thing Diocletian did was call in the gold and close the banks and raise the taxes. He reduced the power of the Senate, delegated its power to a lot of little government bureaus. Do you know they even had a transportation act back there prescribing the fee required to rent one laden ass per mile? And at today's rate of exchange, it would have amounted to about one-eighth cent per mile which meant that in order to make a profit, a jackass would have to carry five passengers? That was simply beyond the capacity of the jackass. Diocletian put millions of people on the public payroll, but when this failed to do the job, the country was still in trouble. He asked more personal powers for himself. For a brief while, incidentally, they were standby powers, but then he used them all at once. He froze wages, he froze prices, he froze jobs, he stopped profits, he dictated to the farmer what he should plant, when and how he should sell it, and for how much, and he rationed food. And what happened? The labor market closed down. Incentive was gone. Farm life became dependent on bureaucratic red tape. Exorbitant taxes cost the farmer his land. He kept for himself only a small plot on which he might grow turnips for his family. He lost the rest of it to the state. And without food and with incentive gone, city life stagnated and declined. And Rome passed into what history has recorded as the Dark Ages, lasting a thousand years. Just by turning to the left, the world has gone in circles. A nation would evolve from a monarchy into an oligarchy, from oligarchy to dictatorship, 
from dictatorship to bureaucracy, from bureaucracy to pure democracy, where finally the people would cry out from the chaos and confusion of the streets, oh, please, God, give us a king, and God would give them a king, and they'd have a monarchy again and start the whole silly cycle anew. Now, either we will profit from the errors of their ways, or it follows as the night, the day, our children are going to have to relive the dark ages all over again. How come after thousands of years of experiment our new nation has come so far so fast? All this in less than 200 years. What is the secret of our success? Well, I think it had to do with a basic American's creed. Perhaps it never passed the pioneer's lips in this form, but if it had, I think he would have said something like this. I believe in my God, in my country, and in myself. I know that sounds like a trite, too simple thing to say, and yet it's a rare man today who will dare to stand up and say, I believe in my God and my country and in myself, and in that order. When the early American pioneer first turned his eyes toward the West, there were only Indian trails or traces, as they were called, for him to follow through the wilderness. Do you know today you can roller skate from Miami to Seattle, from San Diego to Plymouth Rock? In this little bitty instant, as historical time has measured, our 7% of the Earth's population has come to possess more than half of all the world's good things. How come? Well, sir, when that early pioneer turned his eyes toward the West, he didn't demand that somebody else look after him. He didn't demand a free education. He didn't demand a guaranteed rocking chair at eventide. He didn't demand that somebody else take care of him if he got ill or got old. There was an old-fashioned philosophy in those days that a man was supposed to provide for his own and for his own future. He didn't demand a maximum amount of money for a minimum amount of work. Nor did he expect pay for no work at all. Come to think of it, he didn't demand anything. That hard-handed pioneer just looked out there at the rolling plains stretching away to the tall green mountains and then lifted his eyes to the blue skies and said, Thank you, God. Now I can take it from here. Now that spirit isn't dead in our country. It's dormant. It's been discredited in some circles, driven underground, but it isn't dead. It's just that a few seasons ago, politicians baiting their hooks with free barbecue and trading a Ponzi promise for votes began telling us we don't want opportunity anymore. We want security. We don't want opportunity, they said. We want security. They said it so often we came to believe them. We wanted security. And they gave us chains, and we were secure. Suddenly, with our constitutional guarantees depleted, with our national character eroding away, with our tax laws penalizing those who dare to prosper, with workers concentrating on how little they can get by with instead of how much they can produce, suddenly we looked overhead one day to discover that the first tin moon in space was a Russian accomplishment. That free men dragging their feet had been outdistanced by slave workers dragging their chains. And we were sore afraid. Perhaps this was a disguised blessing too. Maybe a dramatic accomplishment by this Cold War adversary was necessary to get us off our dead centers and back to work again. If we can revive in ourselves, then in our youth, Something of that basic American's creed, the horizon has never, ever been so limitless. For man stands now on the threshold of his highest adventure of all, his first faltering footsteps into space. Twenty years from today, 
half of the products you will be using in your everyday living aren't even in the dictionary yet. We've got it made. If we just keep on keeping on, we've got it made. And if we don't, we will follow those other great nation-states of history into the graveyard of ignominious oblivion. History promises only this for certain. We will get exactly what we deserve. Now, isn't that, isn't that something great? You know, he recorded that uh, once again back in the 1960s. It's 1965, 53 years ago. Dad, he was talking about the first faltering steps into space. And by 1969, we had a man on the moon. And now all of these many years later and see how much of that has actually come true. And it all points to how important it is to vote and vote your values and vote for life. Well, vote your values, vote your values. And I want to encourage every pastor, every congregation of any church listening to Bot Radio Network right now, our job is to be the salt and the light. Listen, folks. Salt preserves. Salt preserves. Salt is a preservative. The Lord's people are to be the salt to preserve what is good and decent and moral and then be the light to show the path, to show the future. Turn on the light, for goodness sakes. When things are dark around you, turn on the light. Read that that verse in 2 Chronicles. The light drives out the darkness. Right, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, what is the number for listeners to comment on on whatever they hear on Bot Radio Network? We'd love to hear from our listeners. 1-800-345-2600. That's our listener comment line, 1-800-345-2621. All right. Now, uh, of course, Billy Graham is home with the Lord right now. We know that. But here is his son, and this is what Franklin Graham said. Now, you may be sitting at home wondering, what can I do? First of all, I want you to pray for our nation and its leaders. Second, I want you to vote and be registered to vote and go out and take your family and friends to be sure you vote this election for Almighty God. All right, there you go. There you go, folks. You got your marching orders. This is this is Dick Bot with Rich and uh, with the complete story as a public service. We'll see you later. 